0: year long. Check out Olay's new Indulgent Moisture Body Wash online or at your favorite retailer.
1: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com.
2: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Sarah Dowdy, And I'm Deblina Chakraborty. And today we're going to be talking about a city of gold, but this one existed long before anybody had heard about El Dorado with its mythical streets paved in gold. There was this city in Mali, and that's this great West African empire that was supposedly so rich that slaves could carry staffs that were dusted in gold. And even the most common objects like everyday things around your house would be made out of this precious metal that was so rare in most of the world.
3: Yeah, but the interesting thing is for most of the Middle Ages, Europe hadn't even paid much attention to Africa beyond its northern trading cities at all. But this gold, it really changed things. Yeah, especially when, according to the British historian Dr.
2: Basil Davidson, the rulers of Mali were, quote, rumored to have been the wealthiest men on the face of the earth. So I would say that would be worth checking
3: out, even going across the desert for perhaps. I'd say so. And the most illustrious ruler of this empire was Mansa Musa, And he expanded territories, developed great cities, and most famously displayed his land's wealth in a procession of thousands across Africa. And he didn't do this to fight a battle. He did it to make a pilgrimage to Mecca.
2: So, okay, we're going to be talking about the city of gold, and we're going to be talking about this ruler who made this famous pilgrimage. So who was Mansa Musa, and where did he come from? He came from the Sahel, which is this band of land that separates the Sahara from the forests of Southern Africa. And it's always been an important band, uh, an important part of the world because of the trade that crosses it. And that really started in about 750 AD and lasted until the 16th and 17th centuries when finally ships replaced overland caravans
3: of camels. You could do your trading a lot easier by boats. Yes. And the first great kingdom of this area was that of Ghana, and that's different from the modern nation of Ghana that we know today. Yeah, it's not even really in the same spot nearby, but not exactly the same. But while this kingdom splintered apart, Islamic proselytizing converted much of the region to Islam, including ruling families.
2: Yeah. And one of these families, the Kayita, started up a new kingdom that replaced this empire of Ghana. That was the kingdom of Mali. And it's first major leader, the leader who brought the family to great power, was Sundiata. And there's kind of a fun story about this guy from the oral tradition. Supposedly, he was a really strong child, but kind of clumsy on his feet. But there was a rule, kind of like a King Arthur and the stone sort of story. (laughs) But there was A challenge, whoever could knock down a fruit from this special tree in town and then swallow the pit of that fruit would become king. And so this strong but clumsy boy gave it a shot, and most people would try to knock down the fruit by throwing rocks or some sort of object at it, and it wouldn't work. Cyndiata picked up a man and threw him at the fruit, knocked it down, swallowed the fruit whole, and for good measure, he plucked the tree out of the ground and replanted it in his mother's yard so other people couldn't steal the
3: fruit. Wow, (laughs) That's a hard
2: story to beat about becoming king.
3: Yeah, I mean, I would make him king. Yeah, it's worth it. So the Empire of Mali thrived because of its placement near the Niger River. This kingdom had a lock on all the gold that traveled north, but it wasn't just gold. There was also trade in copper, slaves, and salt.
2: Yeah, so imagine mostly gold and slaves coming from the south and salt coming from the desert and all of it going through this kingdom where they can tax the merchants heavily and make a big profit. Um, but we shouldn't think of it as too cohesive an empire because it had really distinct regions where different people live; They spoke different languages. Um, it, it's not... A, an empire, how you might think of an empire today. Um, And according to Timbuktu, the Sahara's fabled city of gold, which was a book I referenced for this episode, after Cyndiata's death, there there was kind of turmoil. There was a series of emperors. One was insane and (laughs) murdered by his courtiers. That's never good. Um, And power is kind of juggled around until somehow it falls on this man of the servant class named Sakura.
3: And power changed hands a few times again after him and settled on Abu Bakir II, the immediate predecessor of Mansa Musa.
2: Yeah, and Mansa Musa, I mean, we're going to be talking about him more at length later, but he proved to be a very able administrator. He expanded the territory a lot, its reputation, but he wasn't a shoe in for becoming king. And at least the timing of his ascension is kind of a fluke.
3: Yep. As he later told the son of the sultan in Cairo, the only reason he earned his throne was because Abu Bakr refused to believe that the ocean was infinite. So basically, this guy was obsessed with what was across the Atlantic, he would stare
2: out at the ocean, just dying that there might be lands over there that he is not the emperor of.
3: Right. So he finally launched an expedition of 400 ships into this unknown Atlantic Ocean. And only one came back. But the men spoke of a river on the ocean. So that must have been enough for him. He was intrigued of a river being
2: in the ocean, which I I don't know if that's like a current or something, perhaps. Mm -hmm. He was interested. And so he ordered 2,000 new ships. A thousand with men, a thousand with supplies. And this time, he led the fleet out and told Mansa Musa, you're in charge until I come back. <laughs> Unsurprisingly. Famous last words. Yeah, he never came back. <laughs> and um, if you want to compare this to some other transatlantic travel, this is 1310 or 1312. So it's kind of fascinating to imagine what if he did make it. I think you have like a good... Uh, comic book or something possibility I um, fortunately for Mansa Musa he's a lot more content with what he has and expanding the territory and land not sailing off into the great unknown ocean
3: Yes, so his empire became one of the world's largest at the time. A lot of people said it supposedly took a year to travel from one end to the other. But that was probably a bit of an exaggeration. Actually, 14th century traveler Ibn Battuta said that it took him about four months to travel from northern Mali to Niani in the south.
2: So still a very sizable empire. Um, And in the 17th year of his reign, Mansa Musa embarked on the most famous journey of his lifetime. What is the reason why we're talking about him today on the podcast, probably. That's his pilgrimage to Mecca. And basically this pilgrimage let the whole world knew how wealthy his kingdom was and what was beyond the desert. And he traveled from his capital of Niani to Walata, to Tuat, to Cairo. And from there he went on to Mecca and he had a caravan of 60,000 men. 12,000 slaves dressed in brocade and the finest Persian silk. One wife, he brought his senior wife with him, her retinue of 500 slaves. And then he himself rode on horseback with 500 gold staff slaves that we mentioned in the beginning, (laughs) riding in front of him. And his entourage's baggage was carried by 80 camels, and they each carried 300 pounds of gold. So, I mean, just imagine... Something like this passing through your tiny little desert
3: town. I know. That's a lot of baggage. Would be unbelievable. Especially considering he only brought one wife. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, along his way, he gave generously and he spent lavishly. And his party was noted for their good behavior. And he was noted for his own piousness. In Cairo, it took a major convincing to make Mansa Musa pay a formal visit to the Mamluk Sultan, since he didn't wish to break away from his religious observances.
2: Yeah, it basically took someone saying, you really have to go meet with
3: the Sultan or you're going to be in trouble. And according to the chronicler, Al-Umari, he said, I came for the pilgrimage and nothing else. I do not wish to mix anything else with my pilgrimage
2: but probably the most amazing detail of this pilgrimage is that 12 years later al umari found people still talking about the visit in cairo and apparently although this is kind of a disputed fact apparently he flooded the cairo market with so much gold just giving to every official he could find and spending buying everything he could find he infused so much gold into the market that it basically crashed and remained deflated for years. I mean, 12 years later. That's unbelievable. Yeah, that's a long time. So the pilgrimage with all of its gold and all of these slaves and camels and other people attending the pilgrimage with him. That's really impressive in itself. But the truly amazing thing is the impression it leaves on all of the people who see him and how quickly the word spreads, not just through Africa and through the Middle East, but all the way into Southern Europe.
3: Yep, and he's not just spreading the word about himself and his wealth, but he's spreading the word about his home, too. Other West African rulers had made pilgrimages before, but Mansa Musa's really advertised Mali. Muslim kingdoms in North Africa and European kingdoms, they all wanted to see the place that this wealth was coming from, the area that that it originated.
2: Yeah, and Venetian and Genoese trading firms that were based in Alexandria, of course, heard about this great king that was over in Cairo, and they started to spread the word around Southern Europe. And by 1375, which is, you know, it's... A long time later, but this is still of note. Mansa Musa had made it on to Charles V of France's newly commissioned atlas. And if you look up Mansa Musa, the picture you get of him is going to be from this atlas. He's drawn holding a ball of gold. He's wearing a crown. And there's the caption, so abundant is the gold, which is found in his country, that he is the richest and most noble king in all the land. And three cities in his empire are listed on this atlas. So clearly, he's made a big, big impression on people very far away from him.
3: Yeah, and a big name for his homeland.
2: Even though he's a high roller, his riches aren't inexhaustible though,
3: unfortunately. Unfortunately, it would be a better story if they were. It would be. (laughs) Um, He
2: overspends himself, as you so often do when you're traveling, you overspend yourself and then you have to get home and raise some money quickly. And so during the trip home, he had to borrow at really high rates due to all that spending in Cairo and Mecca. Fortunately, though, while he was on his pilgrimage, one of his generals, Sagmandia, had expanded his empire's territory. So he had a lot of new prospective sources of income uh, since he had just incorporated two very wealthy, very uh, prominent city-states, Gao and Timbuktu. Um, so, yeah, it's it's looking like all the borrowing isn't going to be too bad after all. Things are all. looking up.
3: So on the way home, Mansa Musa stops by Cairo, not just to borrow money, but also to collect artisans, masons, iron workers, and the poet and architect of Abu Ishaq al-Sahili al Twajin al-Granada, before swinging through his newly claimed city-states and taking a couple of princes as hostages on the way.
2: Yeah, make sure (laughs) those city-states knew who who was boss. Um, So in exchange for these really extravagant payments, like hundreds of pounds of gold and slaves and food and riverland, the architect, with the very long name, uh, <laughs> builds a lot of great monuments to Mansa Musa. He builds a palace and a mosque in Gao and a now lost palace in Timbuktu and one of, one in Niani. And most famously, he builds a great mosque in Timbuktu. And um, again, if you Google Timbuktu, this is probably the mosque you're going to see. It's the most famous landmark, I'd say, of the city. And it looks a lot like it did in 1330. It's a UNESCO site. It's very threatened by the desert and um, just being neglected in terms of upkeep. Um, but it's a pretty impressive structure. And the rich building projects that Mansa Musa essentially kicks off start a trend because all the wealthy merchants in Timbuktu want to sort of look like what the king is doing and yeah they start bringing in their own Egyptian workers and making their own elaborate homes and we have guilds of masons formed and iron workers formed. And Timbuktu becomes this really cosmopolitan city and there are people from all these different cultures. In the 14th century, there are as many as 115,000 people, which maybe doesn't sound like a whole lot nowadays. But let's compare that to London's population at the same time, which was only 20,000. So pretty close. That's yeah, interesting. it's a it's a huge city with a lot going on.
3: And Timbuktu kept this sort of position as a cosmopolitan city even after Mansa Musa died in 1332, and gradually the states of the Empire of Mali began to break off after that. But Timbuktu went on to become a major cultural and religious center of the world. So, yeah. and
2: uh, you know, it had been uh, it had been a pretty major trading city before Mansa Musa took it under his wing. Um, Long, long ago, it had been this little crossroads town. And I love the story of its naming. It was a place where a Tuareg woman named Buktu ran a rest stop on the edge of the desert near a Niger River tributary. And Timbuktu means well of Buktu. So, you know, there you go. (laughs) Wow. Um, But, you know, it, it had developed a lot since then. But it was under Mansa Musa that it Started, you know, the great libraries developed, the schools developed, and it became the meeting place for some of the best poets and scholars and artists in Africa and the Middle East. And I'd just like to give a little rundown of some of the <laughs> stuff that people were working on at this time, just because it it seems um, so much earlier than the, than you your, would think. Yeah, than you would think. Mm-hmm. In the 15th century, mathematicians in Timbuktu knew about the rotation of the planets and the details of the eclipse, which were things that Galileo and Copernicus calculated a lot later. And we've talked about both of them in recent episodes, so it's interesting to get a little pre-Galileo-Copernicus background on astronomy here.
3: Yeah, definitely. They also kind of tooled around a bit with some ideas from India, including creating Arabic numerals.
2: Yeah, and their physicians wrote about medicinal plants and nutrition and performed early operations on the human eye, which sounds kind of uncomfortable, but I guess you got to start somewhere. And ethicists debated polygamy and tobacco. So, I mean, just a very small slice of all of the ideas that were floating around in Timbuktu. And of course, a lot of ideas on Islam too. It became a great center of Islamic study. Um, so finally, you know, the city did Reach a decline at some point, even though it was long after the Empire of Mali fell, and that came when a Moroccan Sultan invaded and killed the scholars, and that ended the um, educational reputation of Timbuktu somewhat. And its commercial success ended not too long after that, when the ocean trade routes opened up, and nobody had any reason to go all the way to Timbuktu anymore.
3: But luckily, none of it didn't all go away. No. There are many thousands of books that were stashed away, and they were hidden in caves and storage rooms or buried in trunks. And in that way, they were sort of protected from invaders, if not from the elements necessarily. And today there is a major effort to save these ancient books, which many of which were handwritten in classic Arabic on linen-based paper, inks and dyes that were from desert plants, and they had covers that were the skins of goats and sheep.
2: Yeah, and UNESCO has been working on protecting a lot of these texts, almost since Molly's independence in the 1960s. And there are numerous libraries that have been established in Timbuktu, supported by not only UNESCO, but the Ford Foundation or uh, the Professor Henry Louis Gates, Jr., who has promoted uh, the libraries and the texts of Timbuktu a lot, um, people are really focusing on, for one thing, finding them, rounding them up, getting them out of right. the trunks they're buried in in the desert and getting the dust off of them, but also digitizing the library so that they can be used around the world. You don't have to go to Timbuktu to look at this important manuscript.
3: Right, and I think you'd mentioned that some of them are in pretty bad shape.
2: Yeah, a lot of them are rotten at this point. It's um, obviously a dry climate, but dryness isn't always good for books. And there's a rainy season, so you end up with insects and mold and mildew. Um, so a lot of them, it's amazing that they're, they've survived this long. Um, according to Tal Tamari, who's a historian at the National Center for Scientific Research in Paris, what's in the books is likely going to shock the world if it's ever all compiled. Um, Tel Tamari was quoted as saying, these discoveries are going to revolutionize what one thinks about West Africa. So there's really a rush to, to get this onto computers or at least preserved before they disintegrate.
3: Yeah, it sounds like a really challenging effort, but a good one. If you want to learn a little bit more
2: about the preservation effort in Timbuktu, there's a really good Smithsonian article by Joshua Hammer just on how these libraries were formed um, and what people are doing to try to save all these old manuscripts.
3: Yep, and it would be good for them to do that, too, because it's not that easy to visit Timbuktu anymore, is it? No, it's not.
2: Uh, the U.S. State Department cautions against all travel in northern Mali, including Timbuktu, because of threats from the terrorist group AQIM and Tuareg unrest and banditry. Um, so, yeah, unfortunately, going from here to Timbuktu really is <laughs> like an impossibility now unless you're seriously willing to... Um, risk some major personal danger. Uh, And that's unfortunate because it seems like there's so much there still. And of course, the city is also being threatened by the desert itself. I think they're trying to keep it at bay and protect the mosques and the monuments from just being swallowed up by the sand again. So I guess that's about all we have to say about Timbuktu and Mansa Musa today. But it was really interesting to learn about this king who, um, I mean, I had never really heard about him before. He's been suggested a few times. Um, but it's it's interesting to learn about how a whole continent is partly opened up to another part of the world.
3: And about Timbuktu, which I think has almost taken on kind of a mythical persona. Yeah. You know, Timbuktu, you say it when you're talking You want to say, like, something that's the farthest place you can imagine. It's
2: just a catchphrase. I think probably a lot of people don't even realize it's a real city, let alone that um, that catchphrase would have been so wrong for most of its history, (laughs) like the center of things. Um, But I don't know. It was fun. And I think that brings us to listener mail.
3: We have one from Darlene, who says... A long time ago, that's long with lots of O's, back at UCLA, I took an astronomy class with the head of the department, a brilliant and shameless punster who had written many books, including the one assigned as a textbook. Quell surprise in parentheses. During our study of Tycho Brahe, the assigned reading included the puzzling phrase, Tycho Brahe did not die in vain, spelled H-B-E-N. This made sense when we learned that the town in question isn't pronounced Ven, as in your podcast, is pronounced Vane. I think you can figure it out. And she says, thanks as always for an enjoyable peek at corners of history that I did indeed miss in class.
2: I think that might be one of the best correction emails (laughs) we've
3: ever gotten. Yeah, we, I'm glad to know that. Yeah. It is pronounced Vane, so. What a fun little puzzle to... (laughs) throw it. A clever professor. Astronomy enthusiast.
2: We have another one on Tico Brahe, also kind of a fun correction, and it's from Anne in New Hampshire. And she wrote, Movember has nothing to do with celebrating the ability to grow a mustache. It started out as an awareness campaign for prostate cancer, which affects more men in their lifetimes than breast cancer affects women, which gets little awareness. I believe Movember is an umbrella for overall awareness of men's health issues. So that's my little soapbox. Um, and I was uh, looking into Movember after getting a few of these emails a little bit. And I think it started with this group of Australian men in a bar, of course, uh, who decided to grow mustaches. And it was later that they decided, well, we could actually seriously raise some money by our mustache growing. Enterprising young fellows. Yeah. And um, yeah, from there, it became a prostate cancer fundraiser and um, I think depression fundraising and just general men's health issues. So kind of a fun fact about mustache growing and Tico and uh Yeah, I think that's
3: wicked cool. I want to uh, celebrate Movember next year now that I know what I- it's really all
2: about. <laughs> Good luck with that.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Maybe with a
2: false mustache. Yeah. Um, well, I think that about wraps it up. We have... Fortunately for you, an article on the Sahel, if you want to learn a little bit more about the part of Africa we were talking about. You can also email us if you have suggestions for more African history topics at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. We're on Twitter, Missed in History, and we're on Facebook. If you want to check out that article, it's called Why is the Sahel Shifting? You can find it by searching for Sahel on our homepage at www.howstuffworks.com.
1: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. To learn more about the podcast, click on the podcast icon in the upper right corner of our homepage. The HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes.
0: Long. Check out Olay's new Indulgent Moisture Body Wash online or at your favorite retailer.